Winter officially begins on Saturday, but the action on the court is going to be red hot, especially on Saturday in games involving some of the best in the Big East, including a couple blockbuster games that I'm going to cover on this brand new edition of the Igloo. Welcome inside, I'm Tim Best, also affectionately known as Timmy Ice. Again, like I said, winter officially begins on Saturday with the winter solstice. I'm staying nice and chilly here in the igloo, and the weather where I am here in beautiful Utica, New York, is just ice cold. I mean, this morning and yesterday morning, I mean, temperatures were below zero. So yeah, winter has already come here, and it's already kicking my, my region's ass. Let's put it that way. Even though it's pretty cold here, the action has been pretty cool. Far from cool, I, I should say. Matter of fact, there have been a lot of hot topics over the past few days, including a major upset that involved some cold shooting, and that is where we begin with your headlining game from the midweek slate, and it happened Thursday night at the Prudential Center in downtown Newark, the Madhouse on Mulberry. Number seven, Maryland, visiting a shorthanded Seton Hall team that was already missing their top-scoring big man, Sandro Mamukelashvili, broke his wrist a couple weeks ago in a road loss at Iowa State. And to make matters worse, Miles Powell sustained a pretty severe concussion in a blowout loss at Rutgers this past weekend. It was a 20-point loss. Miles Powell only played about 15 minutes of the game. He only scored six points. And his concussion, as I said in the previous episode, was so bad that during a timeout, he asked head coach Kevin Willard, Coach, why are we practicing at Rutgers? So, of course, concussions are nothing to play around with in any sport. Especially when it comes to a non-contact sport like basketball. Well, it's not necessarily a non-contact sport. It's definitely as farther from a contact sport like a sport like football is where, you know, you have that risk of a concussion almost every single play. Basketball, not so much. And when it comes to stuff like this, you got to play it safe. And Miles Powell was kept out of Thursday's game, kept in concussion protocol. He'll probably miss this weekend's game against Prairie View, which I'll touch on in a little bit. So no Miles Powell on top of no Mamu. So what do the Pirates do? They hunkered down defensively and really limited Maryland offensively, and it was the epitome of a rock fight in the rock. Kind of funny how things pan out, right? And the first half, Seton Hall's defense was really, really stifling the Terps. Six minutes left in the first half, Seton Hall had only allowed seven points. 14 minutes, 7 points allowed. That means they were Maryland was only scoring a point every 2 minutes. And at that point in the game, Maryland was only shooting 3 of 21 from the field. 
The only problem was Seton Hall wasn't scoring as much. They were only up 16-7 to at that, actually it was 18-7 at that point. But Maryland finally got their offense alive. They scored 11 points over the final six minutes. Seton Hall still took the lead 27-18 into the locker room. And then the defensive battle kind of stayed the same. And with four minutes to go in this ball game, there were only 79 points on the board, folks. For the whole game, 36 minutes of play and combined between the two teams, just 79 points. And the media timeout took place right at the four-minute mark. It was 43-36 Seton Hall. And in the final four minutes of the game, 21 points were scored. It was 12-9 Maryland, and it seemed like Seton Hall was letting Maryland back into it. It seemed like, oh no, this you're getting flashbacks of what had happened in the Michigan State game at home. The Oregon game of the Bahamas where they had a lead late and let it slide. But this time, they held tough and held on. As the Hall picking up that signature non-conference win that they have been yearning for this entire non-conference slate. They finally get it over Maryland by the final of 52-48. to And it's a pretty clear MVP choice for this game. And it's clearly Quincy McKnight. 17 points. And I mentioned that if Powell was going to be out of this game, which he was... I recommended that Quincy should play his natural position as shooting guard and let Anthony Nelson run the point. Kevin Willard did just that, and it worked wonders for him for two reasons. Number one, Anthony Nelson in his first career start as the point guard. Now we can see how he can run a ball game from start to finish. Instead of being a backup coming off the bench to relieve guys like McKnight, and even Powell got to see him play wire to wire as a point guard, and he excelled. He did really, really well. He was the only other pirate in double figures, as McKnight, again, he had a game high 17 points in the victory. And watching Quincy play more comfortably in the shooting guard position, it's a really good sign because now you can see what a guy like Quincy McKnight could be capable of when he's not worried about just facilitating the offense of being a defensive stalwart. Now he can produce offensively and score the ball really well. He was the X factor for the Pirates in this victory. And now they have, like I said, that signature non-conference win that they've needed and the opportunity that has escaped them time and time again, as I mentioned, losing to Michigan State at home when they were number three in the country and then losing to, at the time, number 11 Oregon in the Bahamas. And now look at Oregon. Arguably a team that has all the potential to make the second weekend. A team that had just won recently on the road at Michigan in Ann Arbor. So those two opportunities slipped out of their hands. And now, this time, they don't let it slip. And the adversity they had to overcome to do that without their two best players. It really goes to show 
for some reason, Kevin Willard just knows how to coach and be at his best when his back is against the wall. And I think it's kind of crazy that he doesn't do as well when he's not dealing with as much adversity. But in times where there is that adversity, that's where he's at his best. As weird as it is. But you got to commend him in a situation like that. So now this non-conference slate has essentially been saved for Seton Hall. Unless a disaster happens on Sunday against Prairie View, which I don't think it'll happen. But... Things could have been a lot worse had they lost this game, which I really thought they would. And the oddsmakers in Vegas, I mean, they clearly favored Maryland after the injury disclosures. They put the line at nearly seven points in favor of Maryland. But Seton Hall overcame that. They climbed that mountain. They won that game. And they have that signature non-conference win now. So instead of having five losses entering the start of Big E's play, now they can be 8-4, and which, not pretty on paper, but having that win over Maryland, a win over Iowa State on a neutral court, and I know losing at Rutgers ain't pretty, but if Rutgers can kind of prove themselves in the Big Ten, that might not look as bad. I know for Seton Hall fans, and believe me, I was one of them who was really, really pissed off and embarrassed by that loss to Rutgers, but it might not be as bad come March, especially if the Scarlet Knights can kind of make a name for themselves in the Big Ten this year. So, what else happened this week? On Wednesday night, as we go backwards into the vault with what happened this week, Xavier... Started off strong against Western Carolina. They had a th- only a three-point halftime lead. And then Western Carolina went on a surge and had a lead pretty deep into the second half. But Xavier just went on a monster run. And they pulled away and won by 13 points, led by a career night from Quentin Gooden. Career-high 25 points, 9 of 11 from the field. Including a perfect 4 for 4 from behind the arc. Crazy thing is, the rest of the Musketeers went just 4 of 13. And the only one that shot above 50% from the line for the three-point line, that was Jason Carter. And he went 2 for 2. So the rest of them went 2 for 11 from three-point range. And Carter the, had 16 points. Fremantle off the bench with 13. And... No one else in double figures for the Musketeers. Paul Scruggs had nine. Tyreek Jones struggled six points, but he did grab 11 rebounds. And then the senior, Bryce Moore, with five points in a starting role. However, just one of seven from the field. Not the prettiest win, but Xavier did get the job done at the Centos Center in their final non-conference home game of the year. Meanwhile, DePaul went on the road and beat Cleveland State 73-65. However, they had a 14-point halftime lead that they nearly blew. 
Paul Reed, phenomenal, 19 and 10 for him. Romeo Weems added 14. Charlie Moore added 12. Again, not a pretty win for DePaul, but keep in mind, this DePaul team is now 11 and 1 right now. 11 and 1. That total of 11 wins is equal, if not more, than their previous season win totals in in recent memory. 2015-16 and 2016-17. And those years, they won nine games in the 2016 season and just and nine again in 2017. So this DePaul team is really coming along well. And they got a chance to enter Biggie's play at 12-1. Barring a setback at home against Northwestern. Which I'll get into more later on. Meanwhile, St. John's ugly start early to this game. But after that, after being down 8-3 after the first media timeout, they just wiped the floor with Albany. 85-57. Red Storm actually scored 50 points in the second half alone. Notable leading scorer for this game was Marcellus Erlingson off the bench. 16 points on 8 of 10 shooting. Also grabbed 9 rebounds off the bench. And how about this? Two other Johnnies off the bench with at least 10. Greg Williams with 11. Rasheem Dunn with 10. And I'm telling you, a great piece by Zach Braziller, by the way, about how that monster dunk that Greg Williams had against Brown, that got his confidence back. And just look at what he did. Wednesday night against Albany, 11 points off the bench, 3 of 5 from behind the arc. And meanwhile, Julian Champagny, 14 points and 6 rebounds for him. However, no Mustafa Heron in this game. So David Carraher started in his place, and LJ Figueroa, he struggled mightily. 9 points, 1 of 8 from 3, 4 of 17 from the field. It just was not LJ's night. And you're going to need him to really be a star contributor in that final non-conference tune-up in San Fran on Saturday night against number 15 Arizona. You need him to contribute at a high level if you want to win that kind of game. And I'll get more into that later on. Meanwhile, Tuesday night, Georgetown dismantled UMBC, continuing their hot streak. They won 81-55. Omer Yurt 7, 22 points to lead the way for the Hoyas. Mac McClung, kind of a quiet night, just 8 points and 4, 12 shooting. Jamarco Pickett added a dozen. And how about the freshman, Kudis Wahab, the freshman from Nigeria? He added 10 points and 9 rebounds off the bench. And Javon Blair, he continues his role. 30 minutes of action, 15 points. 5 of 12 from the field, 3 of 7 from behind the arc, and he also grabbed 7 rebounds. So a solid win for the Hoyas. They are now 8-3 and three on the season. Meanwhile, Marquette, cupcake game against Grambling, took care of business and won 93-72. Marcus Howard, 26 points, continuing his prolific scoring as... In all likelihood, I don't think his scoring record, when it's all said and done, is going to be broken at Marquette. It's going to take some kind of superhuman guy to break that record that Marcus has set. Sakar Adams got eight, 
18 points in that game. 6 of 11 from the field. Powell 5 of 7 from behind the arc. Marcus Howard also 6 of 10 from 3-point range in the win. Kobe McEwen added 10, but he struggled. 0 of 4 from behind the arc. 2 of 7 on, on the day shooting. How about Jamal Kane off the bench? 11 points on 4 of 5 shooting. 3 of 4 from behind the arc. 5 rebounds. Theo John was a perfect 3 of 3 from the field as well. 8 points, 4 rebounds. All in all, solid win for Marquette. And then Biggie's Big 12 battle. Creighton with a big win over Oklahoma. 83-73. Marcus Zigorowski continuing to show why he's the lead candidate for most improved player in the Big East this year. 20 points. And he only took 8 shots. Again, 3 of 8 from the field. 2 of 6 from behind the arc. But he went 12 of 14 from the charity stripe to give him 20 points. Tyshawn Alexander, how about 19-11 and 11 for him? Another double-double for the junior from Charlotte. Mitch Ballack at 17 points. 4 of 10 from behind the arc. And another guy that I was impressed with in his first game of eligibility, the Southeast Missouri State transfer Denzel Mahoney with 14 points. 6 of 8 from the charity stripe. 3 of 9 from the field. He had 14 points. And a big win for the Blue Jays. And they got another big one Saturday night at Arizona State. And I'll analyze that on a later segment in the show. However, the one blemish, it was an ugly one. As Providence, their struggles continued. Facing Florida in the Air Force Reserve Basketball Hall of Fame Invitational at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. The Gators just flat out embarrassed the Friars. Winning 83 to 51. Alpha Diallo was basically the only source of offense in this game. He had 20 points on 5 of 15 shooting. He grabbed 12 rebounds. And then Nate Watson, 18 points, 5 of 11 shooting off the bench with 8 rebounds. And the rest of the Friars, meaning 8 other players combined for 13 points. That's pathetic. Lawan Pipkins had five, Malik White with four, and then Khalif Young and David Duke each with two. Just a humiliating loss for the Friars. And now, if they lose to Texas on Saturday, they, they'll go into Big East play with a losing record. I mean, it is very, very clear that Providence is the worst team in the Big East, and there's not anyone remotely close to them. No shade, just facts. So that is going to set up a pretty big weekend in the Big East. Could have some make-or-break situations for a team like Providence or a golden opportunity for a team like St. John's to pick up a signature win in non-conference play. Same with a team like Creighton to get a signature road win against Arizona State. And I'll have that all coming up right after this. But coming up in the very next segment, a big game in Philly tomorrow. Kansas at Villanova. It's the number one team in the country coming into the city of brotherly love to take on Villanova. And I've got Brendan Riley from VU Hoops. I've got him back on the show, and we've got a full in-depth preview of this game coming up right after this, so don't 
go anywhere. High noon on Saturday, a huge matchup in South Philly between two of the best college basketball programs of this decade. Number one, Kansas. Number 18, Villanova. At the Wells Fargo Center, national television on Fox. And joining me now to give us a Villanova insider perspective on this huge, huge matchup. Welcoming back from VU Hoops, a subsidiary of SB Nation, Brendan Riley. Brendan, thanks for taking the time and joining me back on the show today. Hey there, Tim. Thanks for uh, having me back again. Looking forward to it. Well, obviously, we know about this is a huge, huge game, and this was the one that Villanova fans and maybe even a lot of college basketball fans were circling on their calendar. This is by far the biggest non-conference game Villanova's had this season, probably the biggest one they will have this season, welcoming the number one Jayhawks into the Wells Fargo Center. And so far, the Cats, they're 8-2, and ranked 18th in the country, and the two losses they've had were against really good teams and away from home. Uh, what have you learned about this Villanova team through the first 10 games of this season, Brendan? They're a really good offense, and they pass the ball exceptionally well. They create shots for each other. They get each other open on threes. In fact, over 95% of Villanova's threes on the season are assisted. So they know how to drive the ball in, kick out to open shooters, and they've also been successful inside the paint. I mean, right now they're shooting uh, over 56% inside the arc which is 12th best in the country so their offense is really gelling together and really fluid and they do it by having a lot of positionless basketball as jay wright likes to call it they've got a big man in jeremiah robinson earl who can uh moves much more fluidly than almost anyone he's going to go up against uh, and can also pass distribute. They've got a lot of guards and wings on the perimeter that can attack the basket or take shots from outside. And they've got similar players coming off the bench. So I'd say that the main strength of this team is by far its ability to execute the offense efficiently. Um, And unfortunately the exact opposite is true on the defense, which is where they're, Uh, biggest struggles lie a lot of it has been having to do with putting pressure on uh, opposing guards Uh, Villanova is uh, way down in terms of creating turnovers this year I think they currently rank somewhere in the 200s in terms of two uh, turnover percentage Um, and there I think Ken Palm has them ranked somewhere in the 80s defensively um, the, the team is giving up a lot of dribble penetration. It's giving up uh, a, a lot of size on the interior. And un- unfortunately for the Wildcats to transition into this game, the two things that Kansas does best are dribble penetration, penetration and taking advantage of their size on the interior. So it's absolutely going to be a challenge for Villanova to win this game, which, as you said, is by far the most anticipated game of the season for the Wildcats. But there are a few things they can do to make this game look a little more like some of the previous games we've seen against Kansas are where, you know, Villanova went on a three game winning streak against Kansas in, in from 2016 to 2018. And uh, of course we all remember the 2005 game 
where Villanova and Jay Wright really broke out onto the scene by clobbering a then number two ranked Kansas. And you took the words right out of my mouth nearly 15 years to the day that Kansas was number two. They went into what was well known as the Wachovia Center back in the day, and Villanova just decimated them with that just tremendous offensive attack. Alan Ray, Randy Foy, Curtis Sumter, Mike Nardi. Um, like just as a kid, I thought Villanova. I mean, I, I knew UConn was good, but the team I loved watching. I mean, uh, other than my Orange back in the day, was Nova because just how good they were. Because I loved shooting the ball and seeing how many shooters they had. It was just really, really fun to watch. Um, so this is Villanova's final game before Big East play starts up, but they still have two more non-conference games. Strangely enough, after the start of Big East play, they welcome UConn in January, and then they have a game on the road on a Sunday in February at Temple to round out their Big Five. Um, so where do you um, where do you kind of gauge this team in terms of the landscape of the Big East uh, going into this weekend's game? Well, I still think they're in the top tier of the Big East. Um, I, I think what's been interesting about the Big East this year is that it's clearly a strong league. I don't think there's as much separation between uh, the first and second tier, if you will, as we initially thought there was. Uh, Butler's been far better than anyone anticipated. Seton Hall is dealing with a lot of issues uh, injury-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll say, let, let me put it that way. Seton Hall's dealing with injuries. Georgetown is dealing with issues. Um, right. <laughs> and so that's a polite way to put it. Yeah. Um, Xavier's still in the mix, but I don't think they're quite as strong as we thought they were. Uh, I have to give credit to Marquette. They've shown to be a better team than I was estimating them to be. Um, really the only team that we thought was going to be in the running that clearly isn't is Providence. Uh, they, they've just completely fallen off the map and, you know, they'll be lucky if they can sniff the tournament, let alone um, make any noise in the big East. Uh, but for Villanova, I, I still think they're going to be one of those teams that's going to be in contention for the big East title this year. Uh, like I said, they're, they have the best offense in the league by far. And the question is, are they there? There's only two ways they win the big East this year. It's either their defense continues to develop and gets on par with their offense, which it could, they have the athletes to do it. Or if it doesn't, they just have to simply win shootouts, uh, which they're capable of doing, but, with such a young team, consistency becomes the issue there. So uh, I do think that they're very much in the picture. I, I'm in no, no way going to predict who is walking away with the Big East title this year. I, I think for the first time in a long time, it's a real competition. Yeah, and I mean, to be frankly honest with you, I know there have been several teams who have come into the fold that, trust me, I didn't see coming. You mentioned Butler. I don't think anyone saw DePaul being this good at all either. <laughs> and I mean, but testament to Dave Lato and the, just the team that he's developed and, and Villanova, obviously very, very good still, but yeah, I really, I really can't like pinpoint 
at this point, compared to past years, I can't pinpoint who's the top dog in the league. I just cannot do that. But right now, the top dog in America is Kansas. They're number one in the net, number one in the AP poll, and their only loss was against the Duke team that's only lost one game, and that was a shocker against Stephen F. Austin. So let's talk about this Kansas team, shall we? Winners of the Maui Invitational. They're 9-1 and one this year. Again, their only loss was against Duke in the very first game of the season. Uh, what's really stood out uh, when you've scouted this Kansas team? Uh, is everything uh, an, an answer? Everything stands out for Kansas. <laughs> they are w- very deserving of this number one ranking. And there are a number of elite teams out there. This team, of course, this year, of course, has been a bit topsy-turvy but let's not kid ourselves just because there's not an all-time team doesn't mean there isn't a tier above the rest of college basketball and Kansas is clearly in that level a big reason for that is Devin Dotson he's going to be a candidate for player of the year he is the leader of this team and he is the engine that makes it work Um, I don't know if Villanova or anyone for that matter has a player on their team that can guard him and shut him down. This is more a a game where you have to limit what he can do because you're not going to keep him from scoring and you're not going to keep him from being uh, an impact defensively either. Uh, He he just is a remarkable player uh, and someone that is really going to cause Jay Wright to have some fits. And of course the, the two in that one, two punch is Udoku Azubuki. Um, Villanova obviously has gone up against him before. Um, the difference is that they don't have an Amari Spellman this time that can body him up on defense and then take him out of the paint on offense. Uh, Sure, they do have big men that can shoot threes, and that will be something that Kansas has to deal with if Villanova goes back to a five-out offense that crushed Kansas in the 2018 Final Four. Um, But on defense, they don't have anyone that can handle Azubuki inside. And the additional problem on top of that is that he's not the only big guy Kansas has. Uh, David McCormick is going to be out there. Silvio D'Souza is going to be out there. These are big, long athletes that Villanova is going to have trouble defending. Uh, What they're going to probably have to try to do is defend on the interior with smaller, smaller forwards or larger wings. Guys like Jermaine Samuels, Sadiq Bey. Uh, who are usually matchup threats because they can uh, be disruptive against these kind of guys. But if they're going to try to defend them in Villanova's switching man defense, it, it's going to be difficult uh, to handle the the size Kansas can bring on the interior. It's also going to be difficult to de- penetrate that size on the interior. Kansas is exceptionally good at defending the paint. Uh, now Villanova can shoot over. Kansas and um, you know might as well start getting into it how can Villanova pull an upset here and take down yet another number one team in the country Um, and from where I see it there's two things that they can there's two ways Villanova can win this game the key to both of them is to get Kansas out of their comfort zone Um, 
One way to do it is to make it into a track meet. Um, Kansas has athletes and they will be able to run, but making it into a transition game, trying to get them off, uh, off their balance and make the game about speed is how you defeat Kansas's interior. If you can get their bigs out of position and maybe make them have to foul or get them, in, get them in foul trouble some way, or just make it an all out shootout. That's a game that Villanova could win. Kansas can absolutely win that as well. They're capable of doing it and they've shown how they do it, but they've also been prone to turnovers when the pace gets notched up. So that's one area Villanova could try to exploit Kansas. The other way is to simply shoot over them. You know, it doesn't matter how good you can guard the interior. If Villanova catches fire from the outside, that's where guys that could be mismatched shooters like Cole Swider or Sadiq Bay could be to Villanova's advantage. If they can get hot from the outside, most likely it's going to have to be a mix of the two, depending on personnel that Kansas has on the court. And Jay Wright's going to have to be playing a chess match with Bill self that, uh, to see who, who can get the better matchups out there. And the problem with that is that Kansas just has more people. Uh, and I don't know if they're going to be able to take advantage of Kansas. I, I, it's going to be a very tough game. Villanova is capable of pulling the upset. I'm just not sure if it's going to happen. I mean, I mean, those are, and those, and those are all very good and fair points. Um, so obviously these two teams had met in the fog last year and Kansas won the game, but it was very, very close and circumstances were a lot different uh, back in that last meeting. The, I mean, it was December 15th of last year, I believe. I, and Nova, I mean, that granted, I think they had the better, you know, they had the senior leadership compared to now, you know, with Pascal and Booth, but now they don't have that. Um, I guess my point, a question to you is other than just the obvious difference in location, uh, what do you think some of the biggest differences uh, with last year's game compared to this year's is going to be? Well, there's a lot, and you have to remember there is even more than just missing Pascal and Booth, which you lose a guy that's in contention for rookie of the year in the NBA. Yeah, that's going to have an impact on your team. Phil Booth's also playing the G League now. But you also have to remember Kansas didn't have Azubuki in that game. Uh, He was out for for that game, and Villanova was coming off of a loss to Penn uh, and an additional some off-the-court controversy that – if you feel like looking it up to just look up Javon Quinterly pen game and you'll see what I'm talking about there. Um, but so it was a completely different mindset for that team. It was a completely different roster, both that they had and that Kansas had. I really don't see a lot of similarities between what this, te- how this team approaches the game and how that team did. And the same goes for Kansas. Kansas was a little more, um, Uh, perimeter oriented in that game. They're going to be a lot more focused on their front court here. Villanova was just trying to stand on their two pillars of Phil Booth and Eric 
Pascal. This game, you're going to see Villanova spread the ball out a lot more. You're going to see guys like Justin Moore. You're going to see guys like Jermaine Samuels, Colin Gillespie. You're going to see a lot of the guard slash wings be creating shots for others and really moving the ball around to try to take advantage of the fact that Kansas will likely have a larger lineup. And I mean, you mentioned several players who are going to be coming into the mix and that's this matchup that really weren't that much of a presence last season. Um, if you could pick one player on Villanova's roster, that could be an X factor into them possibly, uh, you know, possibly making an upset bid, uh, who would you pick and why? There's a couple options out there. A name I've seen a lot is Cole Swider. He's an obvious uh, option because he's an exceptional shooter and can really score. Uh, another name that can be thrown out there is Justin Moore, who's just won three consecutive Big East Freshman of the Weeks. Um, he's been really good on offense, although I'm a little worried about his defense, especially if he has to go up against uh, Dotson at any point. Um, but the name I'd throw out there that I think is the biggest uh, X factor, if you will, is probably Jermaine Samuels. Um, we haven't seen Samuels get his uh, shot off as much this year. He, he was effective against Delaware, and it was good to see that turn around. But he's been playing more of a, a shot creator uh, this year. He's been uh, assisting a lot more. Uh, and unfortunately, he's also been turning the ball over a lot more. Uh, it, it's been a little inconsistent, but he's doing all of the things that you need someone to do to win a game. Um, he's taken a step back in the offense as guys like Jeremiah Robinson Earl uh, have stepped up, uh, and Sadiq Bey has become uh, you know, the team's leading scorer. Obviously, Colin Gillespie is still a huge part, but Samuels, I think, needs to have a takeover-type game because he's the player that I think has the best matchup against Kansas. Um, not only is he going to need to do that offensively, but defensively he's probably going to be asked to guard some of these bigger forwards. And if he can make one of them less relevant, or if he can you know, maybe shut down David McCormick and let the rest of the team just worry about how to handle Azubuki, that, that could be a huge boon for Villanova and give them an opportunity to actually win this game. So essentially, in terms of, you, you mentioned him taking over, is like maybe a similar performance like the one he had against Marquette, I believe, last year at the Pavilion? Offensively, yeah. But, I mean, that was just a, a matter of he <laughs> – he was getting the ball on every single turn and, and making everything. Uh, ideally, it would be him getting more threes and, and hitting more threes. I think Villanova is going to hit, have to hit 12-plus threes in this game in order to beat Kansas. Um, and I don't think they do that without him making his fair share of them. Uh, he's a little bit of a streaky shooter this year, but he can get hot from out there. Uh and then the difference between that Marquette game and this game is that they'll be asking him to do a lot more defensively. 
Villanova needs their junior class to step up on defense. And one name I haven't mentioned that much because his minutes have gone down significantly this year is Demir Cosby Roundtree. At Mm -hmm. some point, he's going to have to be the guy that gets pulled in if Jeremiah Robinson Earl gets in foul trouble or needs a break. And he's going to have to go up against Azubuki. And Azubuki is going to have him in size, in speed, and in strength. Uh, and it's going to be up to him to use positioning and uh, and cunning, <laughs> frankly, to outthink and outplay Azubuki if Villanova is going to be able to weather some of the storm, especially if Robinson Earl gets in foul trouble. Uh, just so it's just so to wrap things up, um, mentioned a lot and all the signs kind of lean towards Kansas in somewhat of a closer matchup than some might anticipate, but overall, what do you have for a game prediction? I, I know I've been given all the reasons why Villanova <laughs> isn't going to win this game. But I am optimistic. This is the kind of game that players get up for. This is the reason players come to Villanova, because they want to go and win championships, and they want to beat the best teams in the country. This team is young. They're going to be excited for this game. This is is what you do. This is the kind of game that you have the home crown behind you and you get revved up and amped up for, and you can start just getting hot. And that energy will feed into the rest of the players. Plus Kansas, you know, these players haven't all experienced it, but they remember there's a number of players on this team that were on the 2018 team that remember Villanova just firebombing them in the final four. I mean, just coming out and hitting every three that was out there. This Villanova team is by no means that team that was loaded with NBA talent, but they're capable of catching fire from three. And if they can hit Kansas with that kind of uh, PTSD and, uh, and have to go through another experience of Villanova really reining it from deep, they, they could be in trouble. Um, trust me, I don't think anyone, especially a guy like Udoka Azubuki, I don't think he'd want to experience that kind of barrage again. And I, I, I think I also forgot to ask ask about this as well. Um, I mean, you've been, um, I, I mean, you've been following this close this team closely for quite a long time, and and you obviously know a lot of historical context with previous matchups against very highly ranked opponents, whether it be in the Big East or in non-conference games, especially against teams like Kansas. Uh, what's the vibe like um, on Villanova's campus, um, not only with the team, but the fan base? And even in South Philly, where uh, this game is going to be taking place, I think a lot of people are going to be waking up early and fired up, ready to go for this. I, I will say that this game comes the day after finals finish on campus. So, there is a little bit of worry amongst the fan base that, uh, you know, some of the students might have already gone home or won't have won't be around for uh, the game. But I think this is going to be a sellout crowd. I think there's going to be a packed parking lot hours ahead of the game. 
and, and I think this is going to be a really, really fun environment. Uh, I really do think that this is going to be one of those types of Wells Fargo games that people remember for a long time, like Kansas in 2005 or like Syracuse in 2013 uh, games where Villanova comes out against an elite top five opponent and just plays a full 40 minutes of Villanova basketball and ends up winning. Well, it's definitely going to be something to look forward to. And I think you make a fair argument. I think it might be the game of the day and maybe the game of the weekend in college basketball. It's number one, Kansas, number 18, Villanova at the Wells Fargo Center, high noon on Fox. I expect, I fully expect the A team of Gus Johnson and Jimmy Jackson to be calling that one. Brendan, thanks for helping me preview this and um, definitely look forward to catching up with you down the road and and in Biggie's play. Uh, that madness is going to start up in about a, just over a week now. So real looking forward to that, Brendan. Again, thank you, and I hope to catch up with you soon. Thanks, Tim. Great talking to you as always, and uh, good luck this year. Thank you. More on the Igloo coming up after this. Welcome back. A big thank you again to Brendan Riley from VU Hoops, a subsidiary of SB Nation, for joining me to preview what should be a blockbuster game between Kansas and Villanova. It's the number one Jayhawks and the number 18 Wildcats doing battle at the Wells Fargo Center in South Philly. Should be an excellent battle and a game that a lot of people, not, not just in the Big East and the Big 12, it should be a big battle that the entire country should be watching very closely. And again, that's the highlight game of your weekend slate. Only one game going on tonight, and that's North Dakota State at Marquette. The Bison were a tournament team last year. Beat North Carolina Central in the first four before falling to Zion Williamson and Duke in the first round last season. Completely different look to the Bison, though. And Marquette, I, I'm i fully confident they're going to take care of business in this game, especially when you have a guy like Marcus Howard. Golden Eagles should win that one pretty handily. Talked about Kansas and Villanova before with Brendan Riley. I got to go with my gut. I'm picking the Jayhawks, and it, but it's going to be a really, really close game. Like, really tight. I'm. Last year, it was a tight game in the fog. I'm expecting more of the same at Wells Fargo. I know that the fog is much tougher to play in than an NBA venue like the Wells Fargo Center. But Villanova fans are going to show out and make it a tough place to play. I just don't see any solution defensively for the Jayhawks to stop Devin Dotson, though. Also at noon, Georgetown taking on Samford. Hoyas are going to take care of business in that one. And then another game on Fox, 2 o'clock. Providence trying to avoid going into conference play under 500. They take on the 9-1 Texas Longhorns. Again, Texas's only loss was against Georgetown in the Garden just about a month ago now. They're led by Matt Coleman, who's averaging 13 points a game. 
I mean, that is a well-balanced Texas attack that they have, similar to the way that Providence is. Diallo's leading the way with 14 points a game and nine rebounds as well. Crazy to think a guy who's 6'7 is, you know, far ahead of the rest of his team in terms of leading them in rebounds. And this is going to be my upset pick. I'm going with the Friars to pull an upset here. I think playing in the dunk, I think is going to really favor the Friars in this game. Last year, they went into Austin and knocked off the Longhorns. And I think this year, even though circumstances are a lot different with Texas now being a much better team compared to Providence, I still think the Friars get the job done. I think they are due for a wake-up call after the way they play Tuesday night against Florida. I think this is the game where we see the Providence team that a lot of people have been expecting to see since the preseason, where they were expected to be a tournament team and a team that could win 20 regular season games. Right now, they've looked far from it. I don't think they're going to come anywhere close to winning 20 games this season. But for some odd reason, I just think the Friars are going to pull an upset over the Longhorns Saturday, especially with the whole country watching. I think Ed Cooley is going to instill in his team that they need to come out, put on a show, and deliver a big home win uh, for the Friar faithful. Considering that they've already lost at home to Penn, you got to make up for it somehow, and Texas is a good team to make it up with. So... That's my upset pick. I'm going with Texas. Uh, Going down to Providence and falling to the Friars. Nearly messed up the wording on that. (laughs) Not too long after that, 2.30 Big Ten Network. It's the Crossroads Classic. Purdue and Butler at Bankers Life Fieldhouse in Indianapolis. Home court advantage obviously favors Butler considering they're in Indianapolis. It's always a great doubleheader involving the four prominent college hoops programs in the state of Indiana. Purdue Butler is one game, and then the other game is Indiana against Notre Dame. So overall, a great day of hoops. It's an annual tradition now in Indianapolis. Meanwhile, Purdue, they're 7-4 and four overall. However, they are coming off kind of an ugly loss recently. They lost by 14 at Nebraska. Frankly, they just didn't come ready to play that game. But they had been playing much better after that. Purdue's other losses came at home against Texas, at Marquette in the Gavi games, which they blew a huge lead in the first half. And they also lost to Florida State in a tight game at the Emerald Coast Classic down in Florida, I believe. Yeah, I was at uh, Northwest Florida State in Niceville, Florida. Butler's been playing really well. 10-1 on the season. And they make their bread on defense. And they know how to stifle a team like Purdue. Who has limited offensive weapons. They have balance, but not that one explosive player like Butler has with Kamar Baldwin. And that's the X factor as to why... I'm picking the Bulldogs to knock off Purdue 
and get their 11th win of the season. And then for the late night crowd, Creighton and Arizona State, 8.30 Eastern in Tempe. And this is going to be a tough one. A really, really tough one to pick. Actually, yeah, it, it's, a t- it's a tough game to pick. I, I really believe that. And But you know what? I'm actually going to go back and say, I just think Purdue's going to pull an upset here over, over Butler. I don't know why, but just some tells me Butler's going to have an off night. Granted, they kind of had an off night against Baylor, but even then, they only lost by a point. But just something's telling me that Butler is going to fall to Purdue. I don't know why, but that's just the way I see it. Meanwhile, Creighton at Arizona State. The biggest test for Creighton is to stop Remy Martin. Who is as good, maybe even better than Marcus Zigorowski. I mean, he is a dynamic guard. I think playing this game in Tempe is going to give Arizona State the home court advantage they need. Um, I'll take the Sun Devils winning a close one over the Blue Jays, dropping them to 9-3. and three. Meanwhile, battle between two Chicago teams, Northwestern at DePaul, 8.30 Eastern, CBS Sports Network at Wintrust Arena. Give me the Blue Demons over the Wildcats. I mean, this Northwestern team, they lost to Merrimack this year at home. Merrimack's in their first year as a transitional D1 program. Give me the Blue Demons. Paul Reed leading the way, scoring the ball and rebounding. Charlie Moore doing his thing, dishing out assists and scoring as well. I got the Blue Demons winning that one. And then 10 Eastern, really late one on ESPN2. The Al Adels Classic at the brand new Chase Center in San Fran. As number 16 Arizona taking on St. John's. I just don't think St. John's going to have enough to beat the Wildcats. I don't think they have a solution to defeat, uh, to subdue Zeke Enjai and Nico Mannion. I mean, that's just such a dynamic duo. I don't think they St. John's has the defensive firepower to stop them and limit their production. Meanwhile, Sunday, Seton Hall wraps up non-conference play against Prairie View. That's a game I absolutely think they will win, riding the high off that Maryland win. But the biggest thing is just don't have a hangover going into that game. and let Because Prairie View has played some pretty stiff competition. That's what they do every year at a conference. But I do expect Seton Hall to win. And then the final game of the Big East Big 12 battle, Xavier at TCU in Fort Worth. I'm going to take Xavier in this game. I really believe that Xavier is going to win. I mean, with a, with a stud like Najee Marshall, I just don't think Xavier is going to let themselves go into Fort Worth considering what happened at Wake Forest last weekend. I don't think they want a repeat of that. I think they're going to come in more determined and more confident against a better TCU team that isn't as experienced and young. And I think Xavier's going to capitalize. Najee Marshall is due for a good game. I think he's going to deliver on this stage. But I'm going to have a guy who is going to have something to say about that. And uh, before I go also, I just want to just retract what I said about Purdue Butler. 
I should stick with my gut and stop changing my mind and being indecisive. But I'm going to take Butler over Purdue. That is, that's my final answer, Regis. But anyways, I'm going to have a guy who has something to say about TCU's chances against the Musketeers. And he's coming on the show next, and he's got connections with the Big East. And I'll only give you one hint. He is a Marquette alum. He only played there one year, but the one year he did play, he was simply a stud. And that was his third school that he played at. So he's bounced, he bounced around from program to program, but found his home at Marquette for his final season and had a great senior season with the Golden Eagles. And that was quite a long time ago, 2014-15. Well, I might as well let the cat out of the bag. It's current TCU grad assistant and Marquette alum, Matt Carlino. He is going to join the show right after this for a special interview to talk about his Marquette career and to touch a little bit about his new role as a grad assistant under Jamie Dixon at TCU. So don't go anywhere. That interview is coming up next right here on the Igloo. The Big East Big 12 battle will conclude this Sunday with a battle in Fort Worth as the TCU Horn Frogs will welcome the Xavier Musketeers. And joining me to give some perspective on this game, he is a member of the TCU coaching staff as a grad assistant, but he knows a thing or two about the Big East because his final season of college basketball eligibility, he played at Marquette and was a star for the Golden Eagles in the very first year of the Steve Wojciechowski era. Joining me now, Matt Carlino. Matt, thanks for taking the time out of your schedule to join me inside the Igloo, my friend. All right, thanks, Tim. Well, let's before we talk about Sunday's game, let's kind of reflect on how you got to Marquette because you bounced around quite a few places, UCLA and then to BYU. And then for your graduate season, you end up at Marquette. You've always been a West coast guy coming from Arizona. Uh, what led you to the, the very snowy fortress that is Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Yeah, I, uh, so my mom's family is originally from there and my uncle played there. Um, and I would actually go back to during the Korean era and even during uh, the buzz era once, I believe uh, I went back and was just like at Marquette. So I always had like a connection to Marquette. Um, but yeah, bounced around a lot. And I mean, I don't have any problem with moving around. So it was a great experience. Like you said, uh, I was, the, the beginning of the Wojo era, with which I uh, have a lot of pride in. So, uh, yeah, no, it was it was great to great to be there and great to be like a part of the the Marquette family. And, and even though you're family, of course, yeah. And the Biggies was just starting to like get on its feet again after all the realignment that had happened a couple of years prior. Um, what were your recollections of you know? playing in the Big East and just how much of a grind it was for 18 games over just over two months. Oh yeah. Well, it's interesting because we, we caught the bad end uh, in my season of the grind. Um, We could have easily, we played so many teams so tough and we could have easily had a way different story to our season. I remember uh, Luke Fisher had like a, a, easy layup ish 
against uh, Xavier and just got unfortunate bounce and bounced out. Uh, that would have been a win. I had a three-pointer that they called a, a two against Georgetown, and then we had to go into overtime, and that should have been a win. Uh, you know, I mean, a bunch of stuff, but that's just how the Big East is. It's Every game is such a grind, and, you know, some sometimes teams are last place in the Big East, and it's like they, they could have just as easily have been fourth, or, you know, so – it's uh, it's definitely a grind, and it was a really fun time. Uh, I mean, I'm obviously really biased because I played in it, but it's uh, obviously one of the best leagues in the country, and top to bottom, it's awesome. Um, so let's talk about some of the good and the bad memories. Uh, let's start with one of your really high moments at Marquette, and your game-winning bucket to beat Creighton. It was a really low-scoring game. I think it was, mm. what was it 53 to 52, I believe, was the final, and you got a really good look to win that game. It, it was about as good of a look as you could possibly get. I don't know how the hell Creighton let you that wide open, but just kind of rec- rec- uh, give me your recollection of uh, that game-winning shot and just the overall euphoria of – of that moment and beating um, a Midwest rival in the big East with Creighton. Yeah. I remember that uh, win really well. Um, Just because, like I said, like, I don't remember a ton of stuff, um, you know, from my career. Like, it's not like I'm a guy who can just say a bunch of moments. I really can't. But when you win in the big East, usually it's such a battle that you, it's uh it's usually a very uh it's a memory so that was a big win I remember for us because uh, we were just battling and we couldn't get over the hump a lot and it was one of those games where we got over the hump and I uh I actually made that shot against uh Creighton and uh the guy who was guarding it was should have been higher out on the show was uh Will Artino um and I actually was with him and Archie Diacono after that season in uh, Italy. Uh, so all three of us were together out there. So it's kind of, I think if, I think uh, like we had three big East guys there. So we had a lot, lot to talk about uh, out in, out in Italy together. It's kind of funny how, I mean, the big East is just so woven together. Like, I mean, you always just somehow run into these guys, whether they be on your team overseas or even playing against, even even playing against them. I mean, it, there's mm. almost no way to avoid some kind of Big East connection because everything is just so intertwined, not just within that conference, but just all of college basketball in in general. And uh, to talk about one of your uh, speaking of Ryan Archie Diacono. Uh, an incident that happened. It's going to be the five-year anniversary of it on third. You guys are playing a game at the Wells Fargo Center, and you go up for a layup. I believe it was either a layup or a rebound. I couldn't remember. And Ryan Archer Diacono kind of undercut no, I you. Went a up, little- I went up. I went up like an idiot as a six-two uh, white guard to block a shot, and that's that's how it happened he pump faked me I go flying up in the air and then he 
hits my legs out from under me. Um, so that's how it happened. And yeah, that was, that was not fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I trust me. I watched plenty of replays after, I mean, just the landing, it was like right on your head. It was oh, like, that made me cringe a little bit. I don't like, mm. I haven't physically puked since I was like 10. So, <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> uh, but I remember, uh, I was reading something after that and you kind of, uh, took exception to, what Archie Diacono uh, did that kind of led to you landing right on your head. Um, so have you two talked about that moment since then? And has there been like any kind of like reconciliation of any kind? Uh, I mean, I forgive him. I do think that's a Bush league play. Um, when you know a guy's flying out there and you can, you know, hit him in the legs. But like I said, it's a stupid play by the defense, especially when you're not a shot blocker to go up there but yeah we actually did talk about it and I uh you know I told him that I still thought it was bush league and and that and you know he he was not like he was apologetic and everything about it um obviously he didn't mean any harm by it but but at the same time that's to me a play you can really hurt someone I see it happen all the time now and obviously I'm well aware when it's like about to happen so uh yeah, that, you saw I – th- I think it happened with uh, Steph Curry. Uh, I saw it happen pretty bad with him. He got lucky and kind of rolled over it. But guards going up and blocking shots is just a recipe for disaster. Mm, yep, you know what? Listen, I agree with that, man. I am an, I'm, I'm a guard that – I think I know my role. I just – my job is to keep my two feet on the ground, just get a hand up. That's all. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, uh, one of your final moments, I think it was like almost like a signature moment, the game you guys had against Seton Hall in the Big East tournament in the opening round. That was the very first game of the tournament. Just so many great individual performances. Uh, you obviously stood out by hitting just a flurry of three pointers. Um, so just to talk about, uh, your own, um, signature game with that, were you feeling some type of way going into the garden that day? Did you have that kind of feeling that was like, you know, I'm due for a good night tonight? Well, that's like, that's me where the best place to play is. I always say the garden. Um, and I actually, I've got, I was blessed enough to be able to play there. Like, let me see. I played there against St. John's. I played there twice in the Big East tournament. I got to play there in the NIT against Baylor. Um, and then I actually warmed up there and did not play when I was at UCLA. Um, so I, I got to go to the garden a lot actually in my college career, which is a huge blessing. Cause I just think it's the best place in the world to play a basketball game. Um, so I always was kind of feeling it when I would go there just because of how awesome it was to play there. Um, that night was obviously special because I think I, I tied the Big East record for uh, threes made in the Big East tournament uh, that time. I'm sure Marcus Howard will break that record like he broke my uh, Orlando Classic uh, record this year. Um, so it's just about time that he'll break that this year, I'm sure. Yeah, and I mean, some of the shots you were making were just absolutely ridiculous. I remember you you banked one in, and I was just like, oh, can this guy miss? And the answer was going to be no then. <laughs> 
yeah, that night was that night was for sure now, but it was fun. Um, but I'll tell you, I mean, I think pretty much every single one that you that you knocked down from three, the guy assisting it was Derek Wilson. I mean, for for you, how I mean, he's an unorthodox point guard. He's six one. He's a little chunky. He's from Alaska. Uh, but how much of a blessing oh. was it to have a point guard like him? Oh yeah, Derek was great. He was, and he's just so defensive minded. And me not being so defensive minded, he'd he'd be able to guard the uh, the best guard that they had, which uh, would help me out and always look to to get me the ball. So I was very fortunate to play with him. He's such a great guy, and you know I got to play with uh, Juan Anderson too, who was just super unselfish uh, guy who. Uh, you know, would do all the little things. Um, so we had a good group, uh, a good group of guys that I was very fortunate, very blessed to, very blessed to play with. And uh, yeah, Derek, if I'm not mistaken, I think he had 13 assists that game. It was a lot that I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I think I think he might have. Uh, he almost set a record too that yeah, game. I think he came really, really close. I, I mean. If, if he yeah. didn't have it, he was a, he was knocked he was knocking out the door. It wasn't just a subtle tap on the door. He was like full on close fist, just banging on it. Yeah, yeah, no question. Yeah, so uh, moving on to, I mean, you, I mean, you kind of had somewhat of a brief overseas career, and then you get into coaching now as you've taken a grad position, assistant position. At TCU, uh, what's that been like, and how's it been like working under Jamie Dixon, one of the best in, in in all of college basketball in terms of coaches? Yeah, well, I'm extremely blessed uh, with Coach Dixon. I absolutely love working uh, for him. He's been so good, and I've learned so much from him. He's, I mean, he is. He's one of the best. You know, if you ask anyone, he's one of the best coaches you know, in the country, no matter what level you're talking about. Um, so it's great working for and with him or, uh, yeah, for and with him. And, uh, he, uh, the story of how I got here was, uh, I actually, he recruited me to go to Pitt at the time when I went to Marquette and, uh, <clears throat> I just, you know, kept his contact and, reached out to him because he's so respected and he it was really actually just like very seamless because he was like oh that's great you're exactly what we're looking for we needed to get a, a GA so uh the whole process happened very quickly I was actually playing over in France at the time when it happened um finishing up my season there so I uh that that's uh that's kind of how I got into it, and I'm I'm absolutely loving. It. And it's you guys are having having quite a good non conference schedule. You're eight and two. Uh, you're if I was doing the math right, you're winning your games by an average of thirteen points a game, and your two losses are against pretty solid competition. And each of those losses were by just two points. Uh, close loss against Clemson, and then another one in the um, I believe is the first basketball game ever played in the brand new. Uh, Dickey's Arena, uh, where you guys lost to USC. So uh, how are you? Um, how are you guys uh, feeling uh, mm. 
at this point of the season, you know, you got Christmas coming up really soon. So, um, I mean, from your perspective, where, where are you gauging uh, where uh, this team is at as uh, Big 12 play for you guys is coming up pretty soon? Yeah, no, uh, we did lose two really close games. Um, and they're learning experiences. We have a really young team. Um, so just a lot of learning experiences uh, early. Uh, go, and then going into the Big 12, which is obviously, as you know, one of, if not the best top-to-bottom conference in the country, I would argue, between the Big East, honestly, from a top-to-bottom standpoint in the Big 12. Um, so I'm sure it'll kind of remind me of the biggies because every night's going to be tough. Um, but you know, I, I can't even say my expectations other than that, because I have no idea from this side of the, of the ball, what, what, what's going to happen, but I'm super excited. Obviously, like I told you, I've been learning so much from coach. Um, he's amazing. And I think he does such a great job with the guys and, uh, I'm just looking forward to seeing and learning and you know you're actually one of uh, several uh, former uh, starring players that have uh, gone on to to the coaching ranks I know I recently talked with um, Tyler Lewis uh, former Butler guy not too long ago and um, from mm. from what I can tell engage like sometime in the future I know it's going to happen but uh, a guy that you've been uh, I know you played against uh, at Marquette for a fact Roosevelt Jones uh, he's an assistant coach over at um IU Kokomo. Yeah, I mean, okay. Ro- yeah, Ro- Roosevelt is okay, one of the most nice. unorthodox players I've ever seen, but damn it, he's he was really really good. He was a really really good player. Porky, really Porky good. I think is the is the best way to put his style of play, but um let's talk about your game Sunday against a team that you're pretty familiar with from your playing days, some, a little bit of turnover from when you, when you played, obviously there's a new head coach at Xavier with Travis Steele, but he obviously has his tie-ins with the program and obviously being an assistant under Chris Mack. Uh, so uh, from your guys' standpoint, uh, how are you guys scouting out Xavier and uh, what are some, what are some of the key focal points of the game plan? I know you can't give everything away, but um, what are some things that you can tell us? Yeah, well, I actually know uh, Travis really well because I went to uh, high school with uh, with Darwin Davis, uh, D. Davis, who played at Xavier, and I played against him in the Big East. So Coach Steele and uh, Coach Mack would always be at our gym when we were in high school, like all the time. Um, I mean, obviously, NCAA regulations, they were there <laughs> that in that amount of time. Now that I'm in this, I, I have to be careful about that. But mm-hmm. they obviously never broke any rules. But uh, he's great, and he's always uh, – I know that he's going to do a great job there because, you know, he was under Mac, who's awesome. And, uh, you know, they have – it seems so far that they have very uh, – similar philosophies in the way they do things um and Travis has great energy and you know he's a players type guy just like coach Mac so I just feel like he's just gonna keep it going over there and uh in terms of uh you know 
I don't know what to expect for for this Sunday. Um, obviously, I really like our team, and Coach Dixon, like I said, does a great job. But as I've seen uh, so far, it's just so unpredictable, everything, especially with the college kids. Um, you know, we're in uh, – like with the school and all that, like it's very – very hard to tell what, what's going to happen, especially with a young group. I think, like, when you have these older teams, you can kind of predict it easier. But, I mean, I think it's obviously going to be a good game because it's two teams that are very hungry. Both teams need a need a big win going into conference. Um, so, I'm, I'm Yeah, excited, um, so, I mean – uh, So, on Xavier's roster, I mean, when you're looking at film and all the all these other, you know, stats or maybe even analytics, if you guys really go that far – um, are there any guys that uh, you guys have discussed in terms of uh, how you're going to defend and game plan for them? Well, uh, now we've had a long week and, uh, you know, because we haven't played for a while, so we've been focusing on us. I'm sure we'll break into their stuff, um, you know, probably today or later, you know, but – it's been a. We really want to focus on what we're doing because because we do have such a young group, and we're always trying to teach and uh, all that. So it's it's a lot of us stuff. Um, and I think if we come out there and if we do what coach says, then then yeah, I mean, uh, all, I mean, they're all good that. points. Sometimes you know, worrying about yourself in in a game like this may be a lot more important than worrying about your opponent. And that's no disrespect to Xavier. Xavier's a really good team. Uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, I mean, it's kind of like what I tell uh, some kids sometimes, just if you worry about yourself, you're, you're a lot better off because when you start worrying about the other team, then that's when bad things start to happen. Um, so, uh, just kind of wrap things up a couple things. Number one, um, you know, since your playing career ended, uh, did you still like follow, uh, what Marquette? has been up to uh, since you graduated and the entire Big East for that matter. And also uh, just uh, the last part of it, um, uh, what makes the Big East as a whole uh, just uh, so special and unique from uh, your perspective as a player? Um, yeah, I follow, I follow what Marquette does. I mean, me and Wojo still have a good relationship and, you know, we talk – uh, we haven't been talking because in season you're so busy, but like out of season, I'm sure we'll we'll talk even more. But uh, yeah, the Big East. I kind of was trying to tell everyone around here because you know Coach Dixon was in the old Big East. Um, Coach Benford, one of our other assistants, he was at the, in the Big East at Marquette. Um, so w- we always talk about the Big East a little bit, and what makes it really unique. And especially now with the, the way it is now is uh, the teams, even though they'll have player changes, they all kind of stay the same. And even though it has gotten smaller, the toughness is always going to be like the thing that defies the big, defines the Big East. Um, so I would say those two things, like they, they stick really close to, you know, what they do, like you can basically – take a scout from the year before and just be like, okay, it's even though they have different players in the position, they're doing the same thing almost. 
you know, they're, they, it, it just, it's so consistent uh, in regard to that, in my opinion. Um, and then just the toughness element, I've been trying to tell our guys that, you know, Xavier, they're going to come out and they're going to try to, you know, they're going to try to out tough you from the beginning. And uh, I think, I think that's what you see a lot of times in, in, in the biggies. And I mean, that biggies toughness, I think that's kind of what the biggies prides itself on. And, and you have, I mean, and they're all teams that are, you know, centrally located in a, a, a major city, major city and market. I mean, you got, I mean, Providence has a grip on New England. St. John's got the city. Seton Hall's not too far from, they got New Jersey. Nova's in Philly. Georgetown in D.C. and then on mm. the Midwest you got Xavier in Cincinnati, Butler in Indy, DePaul and Marquette's got Chicago, Milwaukee, and then Creighton out in Omaha. Even though it's ways out, Omaha's still a pretty big city. Um, but yes, I mean, honestly, Literally. I mean, from I I grew up, you know, watching the old Big East. I live an hour away from Syracuse, so I grew up going to games at the Dome. And I said that like in, as an introduction to everybody mm. uh, who would listen to my podcast. If you want to know, I mean. It runs through my veins. I mean, I, I was at the final Big East tournament, um, you know, before realignment. So I saw the last championship game, Syracuse and Louisville, when both of those teams ended up making the final four. So I saw it at its best. I saw it during its changes. And even then, it still comes out as one of the very best conferences in college basketball in the entire country. And Matt, I know you played, even though you're only there for a year, you played a major role in helping make the Big East continue to be one of the best conferences to watch in the country. So, Matt, even though you caused me a lot of pain in Madison Square Garden nearly five years ago, I, I, st- you know, I still really appreciate you coming on the show, reminiscing about your career at Marquette, uh, giving us some insight about your game Sunday with Xavier. Uh, so, again, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, and best of luck to you and your guys on Sunday against the Muskies. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. No problem, man. Your icebreaker is coming up right for this. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Thank you again to Matt Carlino for taking time out of his busy coaching schedule to talk about his career at Marquette and give us a little insight about what life is like as a grad assistant for a legitimate power five program like TCU. And again, best of luck to him and the Horn Frogs as they take on Xavier on Sunday. Again, that's a five Eastern on ESPN two should be a really good game between those two teams. So speaking of Xavier, it is now time for this week's icebreaker and What I'm going to talk about, I know I should have covered this like two weeks ago when it happened, but nonetheless, here I go. So two weeks ago, Xavier, big crosstown rivalry with Cincinnati, Musketeers get a big win, and in a rivalry like this, those wins just matter more to the victors. And for Xavier fans, considering... You know, that these two teams have kind of gone back and forth over the last few years with the home team winning each of the last four meetings, especially winning that game on your home court. It It's nice and fun for Xavier, and they wanted to enjoy it. You want to celebrate a win like that. Of course you do. 
So, at a bar, a hot spot for Xavier fans, fans are out celebrating, and into this bar comes none other than head coach Travis Steele. He walks into the bar, according to the story, and he drops like a thousand dollars. I think it was a thousand dollars cash at the bar, and he said, "Next few rounds are on me." Listen, I don't drink beer. I don't drink at all, really. And I, disclaimer: I also don't like smoke at all or do any drugs, but. Because I'm a law-abiding citizen in that regard. But that is a total baller move from Travis Steele. And let me tell you why. Travis Steele knows how important beating Cincinnati is to his fans and to the university. He's a natural Xavier guy like Chris Mack was. And Travis Steele, because of that connection, I mean, he is a man of the people. And his actions Saturday night after the big win against Cincinnati, it just, that's just the epitome of it, really. And how, what's the angle I'm trying to take on this? Because I can't just, rant and rave about how great of a move it was by Travis Steele to buy these all these drinks for these people at this bar. The reason why is because I think just in the Big East and throughout college basketball, I think the relationship between coaches and their fans is so underrated and undervalued, in my opinion. Because if you're the head coach of a Division One basketball program as well-known as Xavier or any other team in the Big East, you got a big fan base and a lot of expectations to meet. And a big aspect of the job is trying to win fans over, especially if you're a higher that is somewhat in question. The coaching search at St. John's this spring didn't go too well, but eventually they got their man, Mike Anderson, and some people were really questioning it because they questioned if Mike Anderson was a city guy. They questioned if they could have gotten other guys like Tim Cluis from Iona, Porter Mosier from Loyola, Chicago, who just took a mid-major program to the Final Four not too long ago. But Mike Anderson did his job and has essentially won over his fans, alumni, and current students. And how he's done that is by being out in the community and engaging the fans. And that's exactly what Travis Steele has done. Now, I understand that coaches tend not to do that as often just because of how their personality is wired. I think the biggest one out of all of them is Kevin Willard. I mean, honest to God, I have, during my time at Seton Hall, I rarely saw Kevin Willard outside of the Walsh Gym or Prudential Center. Honestly. (laughs) 
He's just not out there that much. He doesn't put himself out there that much. And that's not a problem. That's not a bad thing. But what I am saying is, when you have a job like that and you have some scrutiny, I think a big thing is making that effort to win over your fans. Uh, being out in the community at events, engaging with fans, talking with them, thanking them for their support, all this jazz. I think that's all extremely important because at the end of the day, these fans want a head coach that they can trust, they can relate to, and they can rely on. And Travis Steele, his first year at Xavier was really, really rocky. I mean, I believe he lost eight of his first 11 conference games. And they ended up winning six of their final seven to end the regular season. And then, you know, went to the Biggie Semis and, you know, won a game in the NIT after basically being in territory where they might not have even been considered for a postseason. But Travis Steele, because he's a Xavier guy, he, he, he just understands how that dynamic works and their relationship between the head coach and the fan base. Similar to the way Laval Jordan does at Butler because he's a Butler guy. Patrick Ewing at Georgetown. Georgetown legend. And he makes his presence known in the Georgetown community. And even though Ed Cooley wasn't a Providence guy, he's gone above and beyond to make himself an open book and make himself known to the Providence community and be a leader in the Providence community. Jay Wright's social media presence is what gives him that kind of relationship and trust with his fans and the classy tweets that he puts out after each game, you know, talking about the respect he has for all of these opponents. For a while, I thought he was just pandering and just being pompous and, to be quite frank, a douchebag. And then I realized how sincere of a guy he is. It took me a while, but I'm glad I came to that realization. And Jay Wright really is the epitome of class. And I feel really bad for not realizing that or understanding that for the longest time. But I'm glad I got there. And if that could be a widespread thing in the Big East for coaches to be well-known in their communities and become an advocate for the university and, and the towns and cities in which they live in, you know, that's only going to make the dynamic between the program, the programs at each of these schools and their fan base is just that much stronger and build college basketball fans of programs and of the game for life. Thank you for tuning in to this loaded edition of the Igloo. I'll have one more before Christmas. So be on the lookout for that. So that's going to wrap it up. Until next time, this is Timmy I signing off from the Igloo. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy your weekend and enjoy the beginning of winter because that only means one thing. Big East play, baby, starting real, real soon. So be on the lookout for that. So long, folks.